Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Good morning. It's awesome to be here with you guys. We had to share with the first service, and we were just talking about how like the services are so different. So it's neat that the Word of God is, is alive and active, right? That it transforms. And it's neat that I don't have to be responsible to like have some great ideas that, that encourage you guys to come here and listen to my great ideas. Anything, if there's anything good in this message, I give full credit and full honor to God. Oh, woohoo! <laughs> We're started now. All right. <laughs> All right. To really get started, though, let's open up in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the plans that you have for us. That you didn't just come to Earth for a field trip or an adventure or any other purpose, but to save sinners like me. I thank you that your mission trip is the purpose by which we live our lives, that you came here on a mission to offer yourself as a sacrifice for many, and that I can come up here this morning with good news, with the good news, not with more bad news, but with the good news that transforms lives. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would do the work in every single heart, especially even mine, to transform our lives into things that bring you glory, to transform our priorities and our values, even our own eyes, to be able to see your kingdom and to see the work that you're doing and to prioritize that in our lives above even ourselves. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God is good. Amen. Amen. I'm just so glad that each and every one of you can come here um, because I have a plan. <laughs> and that plan, spoiler alert, is that at the end of this message, you will love God more. Is that okay? Can we do that? So... Take stock, take some inventory, do a qualitative, quantitative analysis, how much you love God now, and then we're all going to do a survey later to see how much that ain't. No, I'm just kidding. All right. So I want to talk to you this morning about living in a hotel. Wait, what? <laughs> I want to talk to you this morning about the idea of living in a hotel. So Pastor Sherman just went to Atlanta, and I understand you didn't spend a lot of time in the hotel, right? So you probably didn't buy more furniture and, like, and replace all the furniture in the hotel room. You didn't redecorate. Not even like a nice fancy vase or anything? Wow, wow. Did you like spend a lot of time with the, the hotel staff and try to be more like them? That's weird. So you went to a foreign place on a mission. And your mission wasn't your own comfort. Your mission wasn't to build your own kingdom. Your mission wasn't to spend more time at the place you're spending time, but instead to be about your father's business. And that's not dissimilar to where each and every one of us finds ourselves this morning. When you go to a hotel, the point of going to a hotel is not to go to the hotel, typically. <laughs> the point is to be about the mission that you're sent. And there's, two, there's a huge difference between the word mission and the word missions. Mission is a purpose that we talk about, and missions is something that we do. And so I want to be people who, instead of just talking about how great God is, and He is, I want to be people who become citizens of the, of the kingdom of heaven, or more, more accurately, who realize that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and that we are here for a purpose greater than our own comfort, that we're here for a purpose that maybe is even hard to see and hard to understand through eyes of flesh, right? That we're here for the kingdom of heaven to do God's work. I have a buddy, actually, who also works for Blue Letter Bible, who recently had to live in a hotel. Um, his house was flooded. There was lots of flood damage, and... And surprise of surprises, it took longer than the insurance company thought for them to repair their house. Weird, right? Uh, <laughs> and, and so they were in a hotel for what looked like it was going to be a month, and it ended up being like, I think they went through two or three different hotels for five months. They said it was just weird. It was weird because you were in this place that you knew was designed for temporary living, that it's not a permanent home, but it became their home. They had to do their, their, their wife, uh, his wife homeschool and they had to do their homeschool there, and they had to live their lives in the context of this hotel room, and it was just strange. I think it's the same way that we get weird when we make this place our permanent home, and when we identify um, this place's values as our values rather than the values that we get from being citizens of the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean, citizens of the kingdom of heaven? I want to illustrate it um, in the way that the author of Hebrews illustrates this, this hall of faith. You guys are probably familiar with this. In, in uh, Hebrews 11... The author talks about what faith is. It's the evidence of things unseen, the substance of things hoped for. And he gives some examples. He talks about Abraham and Moses and about Joshua and all these different heroes of faith. And he categorizes them in this way. He says, all of these died in faith without receiving the promise, because Jesus hadn't come yet at that point. 
Uh, but having seen them, having seen the promises, and having welcomed them from a distance, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. So contrary to the wisdom of Tom Petty, you do have to live like a refugee. If you're a Christian here, you do have to live like a refugee. And really, these heroes of faith, that's how they lived. They lived their lives in a way that wasn't about making themselves more comfortable and about increasing their power and solidifying their kingdom and improving their own personal safety, but they lived in a way that was concerned about God's purposes and the people around them, and that was exemplified by love and care for, for those that God had, had given them to serve, right? Even Abraham, it was, he, we were just talking about this, how he was to be the father of many nations, to show that compassion, that concern, and that fatherly affection in that way. And of course, that's a beautiful picture of God's fatherly influence on us, our relationship with him. So what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? I keep using that term, and, that, and that's a biblical term. That's not just something that I coined. You can't, like, it's a hashtag citizen of heaven, David, right? It's that this is a citizen of heaven. Now, you guys know what it means to be a citizen of the United States, right? Right? That we ha we're able to vote. And we have certain rights, right? We have certain protections. And it's a very similar thing. It was, if anything, in the Roman citizenship context that Paul wrote to the, the Philippian church in, this idea of being a citizen was a huge deal because the Roman Empire, I don't know if you guys know this, it was an empire that grew by force. It wasn't an empire where they, they sent out some emails and they had some, some like, nice hip commercials with like cool, cool people sipping tea saying, Roman Empire, join today, right? It was, they didn't take a vote and say, hey, we're starting a new empire, who wants to come, right? The Roman Empire showed up with soldiers and they said, look, you are Romans now. We defeated all of your soldiers and look, you're, you're in, our, in our country now. You're going to be Romans. But you're not necessarily citizens. And being a Roman citizen was super important because in this day, it was a dangerous place. You could become a slave in the blink of an eye. And there were no protections, especially if you weren't a citizen. You could be imprisoned and even beaten and flogged and whipped without cause, without reason, if you weren't a citizen. But Paul, you may remember, um, was about to have that exact same thing happen to him. He was imprisoned, and they said, look, let's just whip him and, and beat him. And he said, oh, just by the way, just so you should know, full disclosure, I'm a citizen of the Roman Empire. <laughs> they put the brakes on everything. And they said, you've got to let this guy go. We can't, we can't do anything to him. He's a citizen. He's got protection. And so in the same way, we are citizens of heaven. We identify patriotically with the kingdom of heaven. We are ambassadors that are here on a mission to represent the Father's love and to accomplish his purposes here on this earth. Amen? All right. We're all on the same page. I want to look at this verse. I want to look at Romans 12, 2. It's one of my favorite verses, and it comes right after, believe it or not, right after Romans 12, 1. It's sequential. It's kind of cool. Um, and Romans 12, 1 is really neat because... It seems like it's totally a different topic. Like if I were, you guys know the verse numbers are a thing that was added to the Bible later, right? In, in the original Greek manuscripts, they couldn't even, like, there were no spaces because paper is expensive, you know? And so um, I, I probably would have put the verse break at, like, Romans 12.1 to 12.2. There would have been, like, a chapter break there. And I would have been totally, totally wrong. Let me show you why. We talked earlier at the first service about this idea of what consumes us is what drives us. That one of the, the speakers Pastor Sherman was saying at the conference he went to, said that if you are a consumerist culture, if you, if, you, if you live for these things to be consumers, you will be consumed, right? And so the verse that comes before this about what will transform you, about what you conform to, about what shape you will be, who you will be as people, comes right after a verse that says, I beg you, or I beseech you, brethren, in view of God's mercies, looking at God's mercies, right? To offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, that this is holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And contextually, that fits perfect with this. Because if we're consumed with who we want to be, if we put our priorities and our goals and ourselves above all else, then we have no room to allow the work of the Holy Spirit to transform our lives. And Paul, in, in this letter to the Romans, warns them, don't be conformed to the pattern of this word, world. What does conform mean? What does conform mean? It's from this Greek word, uh, meta, oh my goodness, metakazitsuste, right? Something like that. And it means to be shaped. Think about a mold. Like if you're, if you're pouring gold into a mold, it, it forms that shape. It's the thing around you, it's the pressures around you that change your shape, right? I want to get a little bit nerdy here um, and, and dive into the Greek. And, I, and I'm afraid I might lose some of you that are less academically minded. It's going to get pretty schoolish in here. I'm sorry for that. But there's a purpose. I want to show you guys this. Why is it important to study the Bible? Like to really study it? Not, not rhetorical. Go ahead. Because 
Why is it important to study the Bible? To gain knowledge, because it's really, really deep. And I find that if I skim the Bible, if I read the Bible in a year, I'm going to lose tons and tons of stuff. Reading the Bible in a year is awesome. It's totally, totally cool. But also read the Bible to understand, to dig in, to know what every single verse has to say, right? And what's cool is in Greek, there's ways of expressing verbs, especially, that we don't have in English. In Greek, there's a present tense, just like our present tense. You guys know what present tense is, right? We've got past tense, I ran, right? We've got present tense, I'm running, and we've got future tense, I will run, right? And so in the same way, all three of these verbs, to be, not to be conformed, to be transformed, and to prove, are all present tense. They're ongoing and continual. This isn't saying this is something that's done. You can contrast this to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which you may know, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of works, right? That word saved, sozo, that conjugation of that verb, is what's called the perfect tense. And listen, because this is so cool. We don't have this in English. The perfect tense is an action which is completed. It's done. But it has ongoing results. That's cool. It's saying nothing is lacking in your saved. You are really, totally, truly saved. Jesus saved you. And the result of that should be evident in your ongoing life. That's amazing. I love that. This is not that kind of verb. Ah. And I wish that it was. I wish I could just check a box. I wish I could just sign my name on the, on the bottom line, and it's done. I don't have to worry about the world trying to shape me. I, just, I will be transformed by the, by the Spirit of God, right, to know his good and perfect will. I wish it was like that, and it's totally, totally not. And God, you know better than me, so I thank you that you designed it that way, but it's frustrating. It's frustrating that we have to live our lives in this daily contents of, of being on guard not to let our culture and the world shape us away from who God wants us to be. But instead, we need to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. Look at how, on the first one, it says middle. What on earth does middle mean? It's not in the middle, it's the first one, right? What does that mean? So a middle, a middle verb in Greek is something that's called reflexive. It means the subject, in this case us, participates in the results. What it's saying is don't let the world shape you and don't participate in that. Don't participate in things that will cause your priorities and your values and your identity to be shaped by the world. Instead, be transformed. Now look at transformed. It's passive. I know I don't want to lose you because this is so, so important. Listen, a passive verb means that you receive the action. Not that you're doing the action. What this is saying very, very literally and emphatically in the Greek is it's saying you are not able to transform yourself into the image of God. You are not able to transform yourself, but instead you need to let the Holy Spirit transform you and the Word of God transform you. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of our relationship with God in this process. And that's why we're not a whole bunch of self-help people, right? Instead, we acknowledge that the work of the Holy Spirit comes from the Holy Spirit and that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, that he's the one who promised to complete the work that he started in us. And when we're transformed, when we're continually transformed, because again, this isn't a thing that just happened and it's done, but this is a thing that keeps going. This is a daily surrender. This is in every moment, every, every day, and every decision, saying, Holy Spirit, I want you to do the transformative work in my mind so that I won't be shaped by my culture but instead I'll be shaped by my Father. When you do that, suddenly you're in a place where you can prove what God's will is. You understand what God's will is because you've been shaped to be able to listen to God. Did you know that having ears does not make you good listeners? If you have children, you knew that. Um, <laughs> and God's children, God has children, and he knows that. That's why repeatedly, throughout Scripture, it says, he who has an ear, let him hear, right? right? Let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. You look at like the letters that John wrote in Revelation, and every single one, he says, look, if you've got ears, let yourself listen to the Spirit and to what he's speaking to the churches. And so my prayer for each one of us, my prayer for myself, is that we'll have ears to be transformed by God to love him more and to know who we are in Christ. Amen? As citizens of, of the Most High. And, and really to have eyes that see what God wants us to see. Are you able to see everything at once? You may think you are, but you're totally not. Are you able to hear everything at once? You're totally not. Our brains are selective in what they see, what they acknowledge, I should say, right? You guys know what focus is, right? You can focus on something. It's really something that's really tricky. Especially You've seen like these VR headsets. It's really tricky for them to get right, this idea of focus, because our brains and our eyes work so closely and so well-knit to, to zero in on things 
it's hard for them to mimic that in like a headset. It's really hard, actually. They even have, they're trying to like develop things that move back and forth, and it's been a big struggle for them. And so in the same way, we have focuses. And when we focus on something, we lose the periphery. So my question is, what are we focused on this morning? What are we focused on this morning? Because as people who have practical needs in a very physical world, it's hard not to get obsessed with the things that we can feel, touch, control, understand, right? And to, to instead focus on things that are hard to understand, that are spiritual in nature, that are not tangible. And to step out in faith and to trust those things is a hard, hard thing to do. But the fact is that we're here for a purpose. It's not an accident that you're here on earth. Um, this, this is something that, for me as a believer, I've, I, I had always wondered. Like, hey, if, if we're saved, if sin is paid for, if it's done and it's over, then why are we still here, Right? Can't we just, like, get our ticket to heaven and be, like, beam me up and be done, right? That would be great. Sign me up for that, right? Anyone else want on that? Right? The fact of the matter is we are here for a purpose. Jesus himself, who prays for us continually at the right hand of the Father, right before he went to the cross, prayed this prayer over each one of us. He said, I pray this for those who will come and who will believe through his disciples. That's me. That's you guys, right? And he said, I have given them your word. He's speaking to the Father in prayer. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. What on earth does that mean? That means that Jesus very intentionally, in agreement with the Father, because they're, they're one, they have, even though they have separate wills, they're in agreement, wants us here for a purpose. For a purpose. And that's hard, guys. And that purpose maybe isn't what we're always focused on. That purpose isn't to make sure that there's service on Sunday. That purpose isn't to make sure that all the holes are filled in ministry, right? Sometimes we get so cyclic and cyclical in our ideas and in our logic that we think that the purpose of church is to have church, right? But the purpose of church is to be the light and salt that will reach people and draw them near to God by, by sharing the truth of the gospel with them and by God's loving kindness extended through us. Do you guys know that? Did you know that as you suffer things in the world, as you go through trials, that God gives you the comfort and the love that is needed to share with others, right? I think about uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, um, who comforts us in our sorrow so that we may comfort others in any trial, in any tribulation, with the very same comfort we have received. And so even though we live in a world that is often difficult, even though we go through things that are difficult as Christians, and we're not spared from those things, they have purpose. So we have a junction. We have, we have to decide between two mindsets. We have to decide between the practical mindset, and let me tell you that as, as somebody who's highly academic, as somebody who loves science, anyone here love science? Any science nerds? Oh boy, just me. Uh, <laughs> okay, we got some hands. All right, sweet. I love science. I love good science. I love learning about this. So my wife, guys, she's smiling because she knows <laughs> I get nerdy. Um, but I love science. I love learning. And for me to take my brain and set it aside and say, look, there are things that I don't understand. There are things that are real and that are more true than I can ever possibly know that I can't control and I can't weigh and I can't measure and I can't touch. That's hard. But isn't it true? You see, my brain would have me think that if I can't touch it, then it's not real. If I can't feel it, if I can't measure it, then it's not real. But that's totally, totally not true. Who here believes that atoms are a real thing? They really exist. Pretty much everyone, right? Unless you're a really big skeptic. Wow. <laughs> Pretty much everyone believes in atoms. Who here has seen an atom? Who here has, has like grabbed an individual atom and been like, huh, blue. They really are blue. You know, right? <laughs> Nobody, right? Who here believes in electrons? Those are those little like negative deals that wrap around the, the, the nucleus, the protons and neutrons. They go super, super fast. They've got a negative charge. Did you know that we don't, we can't capture an electron? We don't have one on display in a museum, right? That's funny. We can't capture an electron. Some scientists, even convincing, like, renowned, not, not crackpot scientists, really believe that there could be just one electron in the entire universe that just bounces between all the atoms and somehow phases in between because they, they're just rascally. And when you, the smaller you get on physics, the more, like, when you get down below atoms and quarks, things get rascally. Things just get crazy, and they're hard to understand. There are lots of things that we believe without having substantial proof, right? 
So if we put our faith in science, if we put our faith in textbooks and saying that, well, I believe that atoms must be a thing because, well, you know, my science book told me, and pretty much everyone believes that, right? Then how is it more difficult for us to put our trust and our belief and our faith in our Heavenly Father? In the textbook that never changes, never has to be updated, never has to have things redacted, right? How many times... I mean, with our crowd, how many times has, have the textbooks changed just since I was in school? My goodness gracious, it's been a lot. Like, they would never, they would get in trouble if they taught, like, with the textbooks that we went to school with, right? Because we've improved and we've learned. But thanks be to God that he never has to improve. He never has to learn. That he got it right the first time, and it's been true ever since. Amen? So... I want, to, I want to bring your attention to two verses. Romans 8 talks about this hostility between the mind of, of uh, the practical mind, the mind that's set on the flesh, on the works of the flesh, on sin, and the mind that's set on the spirit. And it says that the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, and even it's not able to. It's not able to. That's why um, we were talking earlier um, about how there's no such thing as an atheist. There's no such thing as an atheist. And most, most atheists that you come across you will find are really wounded theists. They're people who believe in God and they're angry at him. How can I say that? How can I find that that's true? Because I don't believe in the Easter Bunny. Spoiler alert, I'm sorry. I really don't. You know? Is he a bunny? He lays eggs? What? It's weird. Right? I don't believe in the Easter Bunny, but I'm not out there writing books about how kids shouldn't believe in the Easter Bunny. I'm not out there holding signs and protesting. I'm out, not out there, you know, slandering the Easter Bunny or people who believe in him, right? Because I don't care. It's not real, right? But you find that most atheists, when you bring up God, they get uncomfortable. They get upset. And it's because they're hurt. It's because they know that there's something that's higher than him, but their minds, because they're sin in the flesh, are unable to submit themselves to God. They're unable, they're incompatible with God. It's not able to. You look at Judges chapter 21. This is the last verse in the entire book of Judges, and this verse comes up a couple times throughout Judges, and it's really kind of the, uh, the gravestone marker inscription on the book of Judges. It's not a joyful, joyful, happy ending. There are no happy endings in Judges. It's pretty dark, guys, if you've read it. And it says that in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And let me tell you, it did not end well. Those things that they thought were right were absolutely not right, and you wouldn't call them right, and you would not want them done to you. It was very, very, very dark. And that's the moral standard that exists when people who are called by God's name and identify with God, refuse to surrender to God and acknowledge him as king. And that's what happens. You see, it's incompatible to say, I believe in God and he's real and I, tr- and, and, and I acknowledge that his word is true, but I refuse to submit to him and to let him rule over my life and to shape me into who he wants me to be. Those two things are incompatible. And then that contrasts that with the, with the heavenly mindset. I think about Galatians 5, which paints this beautiful contrast and picture between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Who here has the fruit of the Spirit memorized? I'm not going to like quiz you. It's okay. You can raise your hand. If you don't have that memorized, memorize it, because that is our litmus test. That's, what's neat about it is it's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. In the Greek, it's very emphatically singular, which means that that's the most amazing fruit ever, right? That that one fruit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, that all of those things are things that we should exhibit, right? Because we spend time with God and because he's conforming us and transforming us and shaping us because we're focused on those things and not on the things that are culture values. Does that make sense? And so in Galatians 5, it says, For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. This heavenly mindset is not a mindset that's, that's hopeless like the world's mindset is. If your mindset is set on the world, there is no hope that comes from the world because the world is temporary and you are a temporary part of it. So any hope, any expectation, any joy that you have is a short-lived thing. What's the opposite of joy? Most people say that the opposite of joy is, is sadness. But that's not the case. You see, sadness and, ha- and happiness are op- opposites because sadness and happiness are based on our circumstances. 
I was happy because that thing happened. I was sad because that thing happened. But joy and hope are things that persist across circumstances and that endure. And really the picture that the Bible gives us of joy is a joy and of hope is a hope that endures, a hope that is permanent, a hope that does not disappoint. That that's the kind of hope that we should be characterized by and that we should ascribe to is that kind of hope. And really when our minds are set on heaven, when, when our, our perspective is set eternally and not on these temporary things that pass away, that's the mindset that we get. That's the lives that we live. I was sharing with the first service that this morning I was going over my, ser- my sermon notes and my wife were doing our little devotion, right? And my wife says, gee, the heater's been on for a long time and <laughs> it hasn't turned off. So yeah, that's true. And I realized, wow, it's not very warm for the heater having been on for a long time. Our heater's busted. I spent like, I don't know, like a half hour trying to fix it. Like looking at little blinky codes and like, okay, four blinks means this. Oh, it's like seven blinks. Where's that? Six plus one. Because that's a different thing. I'm trying to, I can't figure it out. And so I honestly don't know what we're going to do tonight to stay warm. But it doesn't destroy my hope. I'm not like moping around here like, gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do. My heater's broken again, right? But instead, I have a hope that endures, even though the heater thing makes me a little frustrated, maybe a tiny bit anxious. My hope isn't rooted in this world, but rather rooted in the promise of Jesus Christ and eternal life with him. Amen? Amen. Cool. 2 Corinthians 2 is, uh, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 12, paints a beautiful picture of our limitations in this world. Is anyone here limited? I think about the cars, you know, like cars, if it says limited, that's supposed to be good. Like, wait, what? But it's limited. I want the unlimited one, right? So right now as Christians, we're limited. We're limited by the things that we can see. We're limited by, um, by this world and by our separation. But one day, one day, it says that we will, right now we see through a mirror darkly, but one day we will see face to face, right? Right now we know Jesus as through like a reflection dimly, but one day we'll be face to face with him. That's going to be amazing. It says, for now we know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. It's this beautiful reflexive picture in the Greek that says that one day we will know the truth of Scripture and we will know Jesus in a relationship way, the way that he knows us. Dude, can you imagine how awesome that worship's going to be? Can you imagine worshiping Jesus in person without any of those limitations? Like unlimited worship is going to be so beautiful. Unlimited and eternal. So the question becomes, how in the world do we live in the world? How in the world do we live in the world? Because living in the world is not an option, correct? We don't have, like, pass, hard pass, right? I don't, want, I don't want to live in the world. I want out, right? That's not an option for us as Christians. And in fact, we have a purpose in the world, so we should be engaged. A lot of Christians, what they'll do is, rather than deal with this difficult prospect of living in, in a world that is characterized, in a culture that's characterized by sin, they will abstain from that entirely. They'll close their doors, they'll lock their windows, they'll close their church doors, and it, they'll just exist inside these four walls. And that's not the case, guys. That's not the mission that we're called to as Christians, Right? We're to be light and salt. Well, you know what's neat about light and salt? Light brings revelation. It brings insight. It helps people to see. It helps people to not stumble. Have you ever been in a place that's so dark you can feel the darkness? Right? Like, have you ever been underground? Like, under, like, tons and tons and tons of earth? And you turn off your light and you're just like, I don't know where to go. I don't even know where the exit is. My brain is freaking out right now. A lot of people live in that kind of darkness, that kind of hopelessness. That's the kind of thing you see from the celebrity tabloid stuff, where these people who should have every opportunity for joy and happiness in the world are instead hopeless and lost and have broken, broken lives. And we have the hope that can save them. We have the hope that can help them to ascribe to an identity and to a hope that persists across this world, that goes into eternity. I think in order to live in this world without being characterized and tainted by this world, we have to obviously be aware of, of the world's taint and not be, not be conformed to that, like the verse we shared earlier. We have to be intentional about letting the Spirit shape us. We have to know who we are. Do you know the Bible has a lot to say about you? The Bible was talking about you. Right? <laughs> no, the good verses. The good, sorry, no, the good verses. <laughs> right? The Bible has a lot to say about you. The Bible says that we are born of God. Is anyone here born of God? 
Woohoo! Yeah! I'm born of God. That's awesome. John 1 verse 13 says that we are born of God. And this is a literal thing that it's talking about. Um, obviously, it's, it's literal in the spiritual sense, not necessarily in the physical sense. But it's a real thing that it's saying. This isn't John just being poetic. It's saying that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Right? That kind of language is totally, totally different. It says that the old me is passed away. That's no more. Instead, I live as a new creation in Christ. We're born of God. Is anyone in here seated in heaven? Wait, I'm not sure. Uh, maybe, right? <laughs> kind of, a little bit, right? Well, Ephesians 2, verses 6 through 10 says that we are seated in heaven. We're saved by grace. And in fact, in verse 10, it says that you are a masterpiece. You're God's work of art. You're a poema. You're like his poem. That's cool. Does anyone here feel like a masterpiece? <laughs> not, not so much. It's just a work in progress, right? <laughs> It's a work in progress. But one day, I'm going to be on God's fridge, and it's going to be awesome, right? We, we are a masterpiece. So we're created for a purpose. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing. Does anyone here have every single spiritual blessing? Dude, Ephesians 1 and 2. If you haven't read it in a while, get in there. Like, just dig into every single verse. It's beautiful. Uh, Ephesians 2 paints this beautiful picture of contrast, that we, we were lost in, in darkness and utterly depraved, and we were hopeless. But God through his grace, through the um, unmeasurable riches of his grace, saved us. It's a beautiful picture of our relationship of who we are in Christ, right? But we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. And the, that word for every, you know what it means in, in Greek? You ready for this? It's the word pas. You know what it means in Greek? All. Yeah, that's it. It's, it just means all. It's all of them. It's like there's no, there's no limitations. There's no like, oh, it means like sometimes or like just on, on Sundays or bank holidays. It literally means every single spiritual blessing. And that's cool because you look at the Old Testament and there's a lot of talk about us blessing God, right? Blessed be the Lord, uh, right? It's, it's language that you find throughout the Psalms and throughout the Old Testament. And indeed, it's baked into the Hebrew culture. To this day, if you go to like a, a Sabbath service or if you go to a Shabbat service, or like a, a Passover, right? You probably won't know any Hebrew, but you'll come away from that knowing Baruch Adonai, blessed be the Lord, right? Because they say it before every single sentence, like every bite that you take. Okay, now we're going to do the apples, we're going to dip it, Baruch Adonai, right? You, every single time you say blessed be the Lord, but not only do we bless God, but God, out of no obligation, has chosen to bless us. And not just a little bit, like, like not, oh, we got to make sure there's enough to go around, right? Like he's opened up the fire hose, like it's all there, right? Every spiritual blessing, and that's us. He's given us that. Do you know that we have a spiritual inheritance? Does anyone here have a physical inheritance, uh, uh, a worldly inheritance? Maybe, it's not really as big a thing anymore, right? It used to be that you prepared an inheritance for your kids, but it's not really as, as much of a thing anymore. Like we're more concerned with surviving through retirement. As we get older, or even having a retirement. But we have a spiritual inheritance. What that means is not only are we cleansed from sin and saved, not only are we friends of God, which the scripture says, not only are we children of God, but we're legitimate children. And we're heirs with Christ. Now the, th the neat thing about an inheritance is it speaks to a pre-planned thing. You don't have an inheritance by accident. You're like, do, 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 do. Oh, hey, where did all this money come from? I guess I'll give it to my kids, right? <laughs> An inheritance is a planned thing. And indeed, if you look at Scripture from the beginning to end, you see this beautiful illustration of God's plan to make us his children and to give us legitimacy and an inheritance with him. It should get you excited. This is good stuff. Philippians 3, verse 20, Paul's talking about his credentials as a, Pharise as, as a Pharisee before he came to Christ, right? That he was a scribe, and he had like he was circumcised on the right day, and he was a Jew of the Jews, and he kept the law, and he persecuted the church, and he was like, if anyone's like doing a resume for being a good Jew, that's the one. That's the one you would pick as a hirer, right? That, that, he was the model Jew. He says, but all of that... All of that is rubbish. It's all trash. If we had any, Brit any British people in here, they'd say, it's rubbish, right? It's trash. And indeed, when you look at that, that word in the Greek, it's even worse than trash. Put your mind, kind of play with that a little bit. It's not a good word, right? <laughs> that indeed, everything that he had before he came to Christ, even though it would have made all of his neighbors jealous, is trash compared to the value that he has in Christ, compared to the joy that he's discovered, the hope and the relationship and the grace that he has from Christ, and compared to the gospel, it's worthless. 
Ephesians 1, back again to Ephesians 1. I'm telling you guys, Ephesians 1 and 2, read it. Ephesians 1, verse 5, that we are children of the Most High. We're adopted. And as somebody who's gone through that process and knows what the joy of adoption is and how beautiful that picture is, let me tell you that that's an awesome thing. Nobody can make you adopt someone. Did you know that? You adopt by choice. And it's, I, I feel like it's the most beautiful picture of agape love. This love that chooses, regardless of circumstance, to love. The kind of love that God loves us with. It's this pre-decided, like, I don't care what happens, you will be my child. I love it. We're adopted into God's family. We're fellow heirs with Christ. Not only do we have an inheritance, but we're heirs to his kingdom. We're, we, we have the authority, right? All authority has been given to you. Uh, or all authority has been given to Christ, and then on the basis of that, we're to go into all nations and preach the gospel, right? I love it. So much, and so much more. Not only are we fellow heirs, but if you read like Second Peter, it talks about how we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We talked about that when we were praying earlier, that we are a holy nation together, regardless of your genetic or a hereditary background, that we are a holy nation of people who have their citizenship rooted in heaven. That's awesome. So what are we going to do about it? I think that in order to walk in a way and live in a way that identifies with God and that keeps heaven in perspective and to, to keep free from the distractions of the world, I think we need to question our value system. Right? Did you know that a huge part of your culture is what you value? And did you know that around the world people don't value the same things necessarily? Right? Like, for instance, in the United States, one of the big values is being independent. It's, it's a huge milestone in your, in your growth is getting to the point where you move out from your parents and you have your own home and you don't need anyone. You're just you are self-sustaining, right? But in many other portions of the world, that's looked down upon. And in fact, the value is having all of your family under one roof is a huge thing. A lot of cultures celebrate that, Right? A lot. There's, we could go on and on and on for days about how cultural value systems are different and how it would boggle your mind. Even in the United States, like even in this country, if you travel around to the deep south or if you travel to, uh, to the Midwest or if you go to like the New England states, you'll find that people are very, very different. I was joking during the first service about my first time that I went to Georgia, and maybe Pastor Sherman can relate with this, although you were in Atlanta, so it's more civilized there. But I remember we went to Subway, and you're like, Subway is Subway is Subway, right? It's, you've been to Subway restaurant, you know what it is, you know what to order, right? And I go up to the counter, and the person, no joke, tells me, I'm like, what? And they repeated it more emphatically. And luckily, my stepmom was there. She was raised in Georgia, so she could translate. She says, oh, he wants to know what kind of bread you want. I'm like, how did you get that out of that? <laughs> right? So she helped me. I didn't starve. Um, I think we actually, or we may have gone to a Waffle House after that. I don't know. There's Waffle Houses everywhere in Georgia, right? If, if one is, uh, is closed, you just go across the street. Right? So value systems are different everywhere you go. I remember, same, sorry, more Georgia stuff. I remember I went to her church, right? And church is church, subway is subway, right? All churches are the same. All subways are the same. Oh, no, Right? She said, so the pastor, in very clear English, right, said, oh, brother so-and-so, you open up us up in prayer. And man, there was so much grunting and so much, like, I don't even know what that was. Because the guy had, he was massive. I remember to this day, he was like a huge specimen of humanity. And he had this deep, gravelly voice. And he would, and then everyone together at the end said, amen. I'm like, how did you know? How did you know when to say amen? Right? So people are different everywhere you go. People are different. But our value system as Christians should be consistent. Why? Because it's not rooted in our culture. It's not rooted in our personality. It's not rooted in our individual character. But it's rooted in the timeless, the timeless scriptures, the timeless truth of God, right? And isn't that a beautiful thing? Have you guys changed in the last year? Have you changed since you were a kid? A lot, right? As, pe as people, we're constantly changing and constantly growing. We're learning new good things. We're learning new bad things. We're <laughs> constantly in a state of change, right? And so this idea that we should be our own moral authority is inherently flawed because we make bad decisions all the time, right? Our brain tells us you should choose for yourself. You go with your heart, whatever your heart tells you, right? Our brain is just goofy. Don't listen to your brain, right? <laughs> Our brains will make us do all kinds of weird, horrible things. That we're like, brain, where were you on that? What were you thinking, right? So instead, our value system should be driven by the word of God, which does not change, which is infallible. Because our brains sure can be goofy sometimes. 
I love what it says in Philippians 2-3 because we're not just talking about values like it's in money and currency and stuff. We're also talking about human beings, right? It says, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. I think it's the ESV translation says, um, esteem one another as greater than yourself. And I love that contrast between self-esteem and esteeming others. Self-esteem and esteeming others, valuing others as even greater than ourselves can be a cultural, weird, uncomfortable thing in our consumerist culture. This idea that it's not, we're not out for number one, but we're out to try to help others and encourage them and even to, to save them from, from eternal damnation. That's, that's a huge thing, right? And so we should, be, we should identify with that. We should esteem others. I was joking with the first service that I read a book recently that was, that where the main character said, I'm not arrogant. Arrogant people think they're better than everyone else. I'm confident. Confident people know they're better than everyone else. Right? And so let's not be confident or arrogant. But in humility of mind, in humility of mind, let's regard each other as even better than ourselves. I think that that would transform our churches. It would transform our families. It would transform our nation, our community. I think it, it can be a very powerful thing. And you know, it was a great idea because God said it. <laughs> Philippians 3. One chapter later, same audience, same author, says, but whatever things were gained to me, again, this is talking about Paul talking to the Philippian church, I've counted them as loss for the sake of Christ. And certainly Paul lost a lot of things, you know. Looking back um, at this stage, I believe he was in prison awaiting his, uh, his execution. This was near the end of his life. And he's looking back, you know, when you're, you've got nothing else to do. He didn't have a tablet in there or anything, Right. When you're, when you're imprisoned, I'm sure there's a lot of self-reflection. He could have very easily looked at his life and been like, wow, three shipwrecks, been whipped and flogged and, and starved and all these horrible things have happened to me. Maybe I should regret my life decisions. But instead, this is Paul's way of saying, I regret nothing. I regret nothing. Despite all that I've suffered, despite all that I've been through, despite my impending demise, I count everything else as loss in Christ's gain. I love that. And indeed, as Christians who want to have a heavenly perspective, it only makes sense that the scripture would say that our eyes should be focused on Jesus, looking under Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Is anyone here glad that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith? Yeah. Dude, seriously, because if I were like, you guys know that faith grows through adversity, right? If I was like in charge of my growth for my faith, it would be very tiny and it would stay tiny for a long, long time. So looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, right? What does all this mean? All this means that Jesus modeled this himself. What were Jesus' eyes focused on? What was the, the goal? What was the thing that drove him, even though he didn't want to, even though he despised the shame, what was the thing that drove him to endure the cross? The joy that was set before him. And what is that joy? It's you and me. It's, it's this idea that we could be reconciled. It's this idea that the wall of sin could fall and that we could be joined together. It's the goal from the very beginning in the garden all the way to the end that's always been in mind. This reconciliation, this grace, this forgiveness, uh, this, this gospel, this good news that we could be with God and we could be part of his family. That, that drove Jesus not only from heaven to be born in the humility of being a child and growing up on this world, but even to endure the, the, the shame of the cross is a huge, huge thing. And coming toward the end, number four, living a surrendered life to God. Do you guys know that living a life that's characterized by faith and that makes decisions and values things and has a perspective based on faith requires surrender? Why is this called require surrender? Because faith means that we don't control it. Faith means that we're not in charge. Faith means that we can't feel it. Faith oftentimes means we can't even see what's coming. And that can be very scary. That can be very scary. Like, if I were, if I were like, to, I don't know, take a teenager and say, okay, he's going to drive you to Lancaster. I want you to put a blindfold on. He, this is his first time, so be nice to him. And <laughs> they just throw you in the car. You'd be like, I don't want to do that. That's scary, right? That's scary. And so if we're going to surrender control of our lives, if we're going to surrender our value system, if we're going to surrender our perspective, if we're going to surrender our rights, so to speak, as fleshy meat bags, then we need to know that we can trust God. And that means that we need to have faith in Him. Amen? And so 
Our faith empowers us to surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit and to be transformed. Remember that Romans 12, 2 verse we looked at? To receive that transformation to help us to know God's will and to trust Him more. And to trust Him more. And you see how faith grows even through adversity. Now why would this, this verse be up here talking about faith? This is probably the, one of the most dreaded verses in the Bible, right? Right? It's like if I were to tell you, oh, I'm going to go pray that all of you have patience, right? That's, <laughs> it's like on that level, right? And so James says that we're to consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, and that testing is, is the same word that it means like the way that they would test gold to melt out the impurities, that, that boiling of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Is anyone in here perfect and complete, lacking nothing? I've got bad news for you then. There's a difficult road ahead for each of us. There's a difficult road. There's going to be joys. There's going to be trials in, in, in Christianity. If you were brought to this place, if you accepted Jesus under the premise that it would make all your problems go away, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that's not the case. It really isn't. One day, one day we have eternal hope to know that one day we will be with Jesus in heaven and that it's going to be totally awesome. But until that day comes, we have to live as people who are citizens of heaven. We have to live with the perspective that God has given us and not get distracted by the things of this world. And we have to endure sorrows and trials and difficult times knowing that there's a purpose in it because if we don't, then we go mad. If we don't, then we'll misunderstand the character of God in allowing us to suffer these things. And if we, if we lose sight that there's a purpose, then we'll lose even, even our faith, even this idea that we can trust God. You have to know that the discipline that God shows us throughout life, and not just discipline as in you were bad and he smacks your hand, but discipline as in like exercise. These, in, these trials that we endure are even the evidence of God's love for us. Now that's a weird thing to say. Well, how can you know that, David? Because that's what the Word of God says. It says that if we weren't disciplined, it would be evidence that God doesn't love us, but the proof of God's love is in the discipline that he shows us. Is in the fact that he's not content to let me be who I am today. But he's the author and the perfecter of my faith. He's the one who began a good work and will be faithful to complete it. And so if that doesn't give you hope, then I, I pray that it will. I pray that you'll steep in that. I pray that you'll understand and look at the eternal perspective and know that God's going somewhere with this. And he's doing a work to transform us. I look at the, the, the contrast between these two verses that in Proverbs, it says that there's a way that seems right to man, but its end is death. And when I'm enduring difficult circumstances, like my heater being mean to me this morning and making me frustrated, it doesn't seem right. And I get angry until I realize that God has a plan and that I can do everything in a way that brings him glory and that shows my gratitude to him. Do you know that gratitude is so powerful in transforming our attitude? Isn't that true? Oftentimes when my kids are having a difficult time, um, I'll tell them, you know, when you go to sleep, I want you to think about all the things that you're grateful for. And it has this transformative way of us. It has this, this way of making us think of, of not just our present circumstances, but of God's faithfulness. It says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to the, to the good Father, to God the Father. Amen? So I want to close with this. And some of you are like, yay, lunch is coming. Right? Um, but I want to close with this. And I pray that this will be the, the catalyst that makes this make sense to you. I want to challenge your definition of life because we define life typically as having a pulse and having air in our lungs and being able to breathe and being able to, to keep that pulse going. But I know lots of people who meet those qualifications but are dead spiritually. And I don't want us to be dead spiritually. I want to grow. And you know how you grow? You know how you take hold of life? Do you know how you define life biblically? It says, this is eternal life that you may know, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. As Christians, as citizens of heaven, as people who have our focus on eternity and not on the temporary sorrows and troubles of life, who shape our character and our values and our priorities around God's word and not around what's culturally appropriate, as those kinds of people, we can enter into a place where we get to know Jesus Christ. And from that knowledge, from that intimacy, we start to know what life really is. 
That's why Paul, in a jail cell, awaiting his death, can write, I, I encourage you to rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice in the Lord. That's how people who, who have been martyred, how, how they hold on to their joy and they know that God is real. And they know because he's led them through these seasons. He's tested their faith and shown his love through that discipline. And because we have a hope that endures beyond this world. The hard part is we need to remember to live in that place. You need to remember that when you go out those doors and when you, when you sit down to eat lunch today and when you wake up on Monday, this Monday's a holiday, so when you wake up on next Monday, <laughs> you know that you know that you are loved by God, that your identity is rooted in Him, that He has a plan for your life, and that if you're enduring difficult times now, to know, know that God loves you. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your patience with us. I don't even know if patience is the right word to describe how enormous, how enormous your patience is with us. I thank you for your Holy Spirit that works in and through us, for your living word that is alive and active. I thank you for your word that goes forth to accomplish its purposes and does not return void. I especially thank you that for some reason, despite all logic and reason, that you want me not that you want what you can get from me, but that you want me to know you and to know the power of God and to live and act and move inside that power, to live for it, to be people who exemplify the gospel, who don't just talk about good news, but who shine with it and shine with the light that pushes back the darkness that's in this community, that pushes back the darkness that's in our hearts, to be salt that brings flavor and life and truth. God, I pray that you would blow up our priority system and redefine us. I pray that you would make us new creatures in Christ. I pray that we would not be the same, that we would love you more and more with every word that we speak, with every thought that we think, as we bathe ourselves in your word, and as we get to know you and to know what real life is, God. I pray that you would make us alive as we worship you today and tomorrow and the next day as we spend time with you in your word and as we, we let you perfect the work that you've started in us to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.